Good morning. I'm Stephen. I'm the pastor here. And I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, you can open them to the book of Genesis. We're going to look in Genesis chapter 1 today and Genesis 2 and 3 as well as we continue on in this series. Um, We're in a series that's called Servants and Leaders. Uh, We have a nice graphic for it. There it is. Servants and leaders, these are the men and women who build the church. And we're we're looking in this process of the next six, seven weeks to identify new elders and deacons in our church. Uh, And so in doing this, we're actually going to try to call all of us as men and women to grow and to be the men and women God has called us to be. Um, if we started this series by simply describing the offices of elder and deacon, I think it'd be a, it would get frustrating because there are things that the Bible says about leadership in the church, specifically about gender and those leaders that are very much out of step with the culture. Okay, uh, they're very out of step with the culture, and uh, the Bible and aspects of the Bible can make people really frustrated and upset. So I want to spend this week and next talking about gender. I want to talk about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman over the next two weeks, uh, because this will lay the foundation when we get to the descriptions of elder and deacon for us to understand some of the why behind the what in the Bible's description about leadership in the church. And, uh, and I just want to say, too, so I'm about to preach a sermon on what it means to be a man. Uh, next week, I'm a little bit more fear and trembling. I'm going to preach a sermon about what it means to be a woman. And I just want to let you know that all of you, I'm sure, are going to some motivated by real experience, others motivated by just sheer cynicism. You're going to be able to say to me, hey, Stephen, what you said isn't true in my case. Or, hey, Stephen, what you said isn't true because I know so-and-so and so-and-so, and and they don't fit the stereotypes that you are presenting or talking about. And I just want to say, guess what? You're right. So, um, So you can take that, maybe put it aside. Um, and, and I want to challenge you, though, to enter into what the Bible is saying. Try it on for size and see if there isn't life here in what God has to say, specifically today about men. I, I'm not going to be able to say everything. You know, obviously, we're just going to scratch the surface. But I think that what we're going to talk about is going to be incredibly helpful. And so um, I just want to encourage you to not check out and to not let the cynic in you say yeah, but to everything I say in the sermon. Okay, deal? Does that work? I'm admitting that I'm not being exhaustive and you admit that you're not going to expect me to be exhaustive. Sounds like a good covenant arrangement. Um, We're going to walk through actually uh, the whole story of the Bible today as we look at Genesis. We're going to see God's design at creation. We're going to see how the fall into sin has corrupted God's good design. And then we're going to see how Jesus redeems us from our corrupted fallen state and brings us renewal. Okay, so creation, fall, redemption, renewal. These are the four sort of chapter headings if you want to tell the story of the whole Bible, um, things that we've talked about before. So let's look first at Genesis 1 uh, because what God calls Adam to be, what God calls the man to be in the beginning is actually a reflection of God himself. And so let's just look first. Um, I want to I say these are the men that we need. And first, men, the, the men that our church needs um, have an authority that reflects God's image. Okay? 
The men that we need have an authority that reflects. Their authority reflects God's image. And we see this in Genesis 1, verses 27 uh, and following. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the female is actually part of the image. We'll talk about her next week. Um, And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And so we see here that men and women are made in the image of God. Men are called actually and given authority. They're told to have dominion. They're told to subdue the earth. They're told to lead. Okay, but all of these things are designed by God to be expressions of his image. Okay, the leadership that men are supposed to provide uh, is designed to reflect God's image. And so that's where it starts with Genesis 1, 27 and 28. Uh, The next thing that characterizes the men that we need is from Genesis 2, 15 that we'll look at in a second. But I want to give you the point before they work to make others life-giving. Okay, the men that we need, we need men leading our church who can make others to be life-giving. And this is Genesis 2.15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So the word work is a very, uh, you say it's a pregnant word. There's a lot in the word work. Okay, this word um, is a reflection again of God. Um, In Genesis 1, God doesn't just make life. God makes fruitful, multiplying life. Okay, everything that God makes, all the living things that God makes, he doesn't just create them and they're alive. He creates them and they are life-giving. Okay, the plants, the animals, the human beings, they are created, they're made alive, and they have within them the ability to make more life, to be fruitful and to multiply. And so here in Genesis 2, God puts the man in the garden to work it. And the word work there, it means to cultivate the garden. It means to take the garden and to work it so that it produces life giving, multiplying fruitfulness. And so God gives the man um, the work, and this is true for the man's work, and it's also true for his relationship with others, that the design for man is to be life-giving himself, to give life to others, but also to train and develop others so that they become life-giving. Okay? This is... uh, what the word, this is what's in the word work. Um, then keep moving. Um, third thing is that uh, these men that we need, they also keep others by protecting them. Okay, so in Genesis 2.15, he took the man to, he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So the word keep, um, again, is a word that is used in other places in the Bible to describe the process of guarding and protecting. The word is actually translated guard in Leviticus, where the priests are supposed to guard the sanctity of the tabernacle. They're supposed to protect the tabernacle from evil, from things that are bad. And so here, what we see is that man was called to protect the garden from the infiltration of evil. You say, well, why is that necessary, right? Everything God made was good. Well, Genesis 3 tells us 
why and, and from what the man was supposed to protect the garden. Okay? It's the devil who shows up uh, in temptation. And so to keep the garden is to protect. Um, and then fourth, from Genesis 2.16, these men that we need, they live in a vibrant relationship with God. Okay? We need men who have a vibrant relationship with God. And we see this in verses 16 and 17 of Genesis 2. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat every, of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. What we see here are the stipulations of the covenantal arrangement that existed between God and the man. Okay, this is before the woman was created. She's created um, in just a minute in Genesis 2. She's not there yet. And what God is saying here, in fact, the word, the Lord God, that's the word, the, the, the Lord in all capitals, that's the name of God where God is extending the bonds of his family love, where he's drawing the circle of his family love around other people. And so God is entering into this covenantal relationship with Adam. He is inviting Adam not just to be alive, not just to work, not just to protect, but to do all of this in a vibrant relationship with him. Okay, Men were created to know God and to walk with him. Men were created. I mean, it's interesting. Like I have this one book. It's called Why Men Hate the Church. And it's because the church has... You know, I'll talk about that more uh, in future weeks. But, um, but the, the point is that um, there are certain parts of the culture, certain parts of even Christianity that say that like men, they, just, they, don't, they don't have a relationship with God. You know, they just sort of do stuff. They might teach. But, uh, but really, like the relationship piece sometimes gets lacking. Sometimes it's left behind. But that's not God's design. God's design is that every man would have a vibrant relationship with him, where they would walk with God, where they would know God. In the garden, there was the tree of life, and the tree of life promised both Adam at first, but then also Adam and Eve, that there was an eternity, like there was an eternity that they had to look forward to, that God was in the garden with them, that there was a sanctuary place where they could spend time with God. They could know God better. The Sabbath every week was designed to call them from the workout there to come in and meet with God one day in seven. And so there are things about the um, just the arrangement in Genesis 1 and 2 where we see that God's design was that people would live in a relationship with Him. And that includes men. And so the idea that that in creation, that there was the tree of life, the idea that there was the Sabbath, uh, it meant that God wanted the man to actively pursue the things that built his relationship with God. Okay, the tree of life was almost like a sacrament before the fall. It was this assurance that God was with them. It was this assurance that God gave life to them. They were allowed to participate and partake of the tree of life. And when they did that, they were pursuing their relationship with God. Uh, now, for us, what this looks like, um, you know, for us today, a vibrant relationship with God for a man looks like pursuing God and His Word. It means spending time reading the Bible. It means spending time with God in prayer. 
Um, we're not talking about just people who call themselves Christians, but what our church needs are men who have a sincere relationship with God. They know God. They are known by God. In, they live in covenant with God. Because if men are called to be life-giving, if men are called to help other people to become life-giving, they can't do that without being directly connected, consistently connected to the life giver who is God. And so uh, so these men need to have a vibrant relationship with God. And then the last way that I think Genesis 1 and 2 describes this, in Genesis 2.18, it's that the men that we need, they lead and include women. They lead and include women. And this is from Genesis 2.18, which says this, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So we're going to talk about God describing the woman as a helper. um, But what I want to focus on today is that in all that God made, in all of the good that God made, there was one thing that wasn't good. There was one thing that wasn't good. And God admits it. So God makes all this stuff and then he admits it. He calls himself on this. And he says, hey, this one thing that I've made is not good. Um, it's not good that man is alone. And so he makes the woman to be a perfect complement to man. The woman is the completer of the man, uh, which means that men are not finished without women. Okay, This doesn't mean that every man has to be married. This doesn't mean that every man needs to be married to a woman. But this means that men cannot image God completely without women. Okay? Um, and it, so, the, this is not, and remember, this is before the fall into sin. So, even in creation, even in God's design, uh, because God is fully imaged in male plus female. That's why Genesis 1 28 or 27 says, um, in the image of God, he created them, male and female. So, God's image is reflected more fully and more entirely when you have male plus female. And so, when we think about church leadership, I want you to hear me on this. The kind of men we need are the, are the men who know that they cannot lead the way they're supposed to lead without women. Okay? We don't need men who will suppress women. We don't need men who will oppress women. We don't need men who will ignore women. We don't need men who will, in sort of macho fits of humor... Um, act like they can make decisions completely disregarding the women in our church. And so this is really important. Again, we'll talk about more of the details of this. We want men who know that they need and seek out the input and the wisdom of women in our church. Okay? So these are the principles of the men that we need. This is what we're looking for when we think about elders, when we think about male deacons, um, the leadership of God is designed to make life-giving things out of everything it touches. That's what leaders are designed to do. They're designed to be filled with the life of God and to fill others with that life to the point where those people, the people that they touch, are able to then turn around and give life to others. This is an incredibly high calling. This is incredibly, I mean, to me, this is exciting and and it's inspiring. I mean, these people know God and they walk with him. 
These people understand right and wrong to the place where they can protect, they can hear other people, they can discern truth and error. Uh, These are people who, when you see their life, you think, wow, this reminds me of what God is like as the Bible reveals him. And so these are the men, and this is God's design for men at creation. Now, what is absolutely tragic is that things didn't stay this way. Like the tragedy of the fall into sin. Um, because all of God's power, all of God's design in creating men to be this way, filling them with the power of God, with the love of God, this transforming power, all of what God imbued into man was designed to make the world full of life-giving people, uh, to make the world full of joy and amazement. And this is what was lost in the fall. Okay, the fall wasn't just, oh, they ate the forbidden fruit. It wasn't just that they broke the one rule God gave them. It was that this is lost. This is lost. These people were lost in the fall. They had literally the glory of God. Adam had the glory of God, and he exchanged that glory to serve himself. He exchanged, he handed that glory in. He said, you know what? Yeah, this is pretty good, but actually I've got something better. I want to be in charge. Or I want the serpent to be in charge. And so sin entered the world through one man and death through sin and death spread to all. And sin has infected and affected everything. Everything. And I want to zoom in again today specifically on how this has affected men. Because when we look for men to serve and lead in our church, we need men who understand just how the fall has corrupted us. No one's perfect. No man among us is, uh, is able to measure up to this standard anymore. All of us are fallen. All of us struggle. All of us fail. And we need men who understand their failure who are willing to be honest about their failure, but also men who know how to fight against the kind of corruption that comes uh, with the fall. And so there is a phrase, there's a verse actually, that I think is like an umbrella that can provide uh, like a topic sentence under which all kinds of corruption that characterize men and women fall. Okay, and so we have this one verse. It's Genesis 3.16. And this is where God describes the consequences of the fall and how it corrupts both men and women. And so God is actually talking to the woman in Genesis 3, 16. It says, um, let's see here, here we go. He's talking to the woman and God says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This is a bit of a cryptic verse. Um, there's a lot here. It's one of these things where um, in the beginning of every great story, it's said that you sort of find the details that will show up and grow later on throughout the story. And that's certainly true here. Um, this is specifically addressing the corruption of the marriage relationship between the man and the woman and how marriage will be corrupted. But we have to remember that at this point in time, in Genesis 3, the man's relationship with his wife 
is his relationship with everyone. So God is saying 100% of your relationships are going to be characterized like this. To the woman, your desire will be for your husband and for the man. He will rule over you. This phrase, he shall rule over you. Um, what this means, to rule means to control. Okay, This is not God establishing headship uh, in a marriage. This is God describing the specific corruption that's going to characterize the misuse of male authority. Okay, rule means control. God is saying that the curse on men, the effect of the fall into sin on men, is that it's going to tempt them to control others. It's going to tempt men to control others. And so just to flesh this out, men are tempted to control others through aggression. It's through aggression. This is, I think, one of men's most formidable weapons. Um, and not just in marriage. We're going to see this applies far beyond marriage. Um, there's really two kinds of aggression. Um, and we need men to lead us who understand this temptation uh, and, again, who have learned how to fight against it. The first kind of aggression is active aggression. And so I want to dive into this and help us see that this is the result of the fall into sin. Um, Active aggression means to aggressively dominate your wife or just or others. These are men who act like tyrants. Um, here's a visual. Um, so I totally I'm cool with you guys laughing at this. It's a little bit of a you know it's like a it just sort of catches you off guard, right? Um, I've been on the receiving end of this look in full emotional abusive power. Um, I've seen men look like this in dealing with their wives or in dealing with other people. Um, I'm ashamed to say that this has been my face at times in my own life as I have used active aggression to control other people. Um, and so, again, I'm not faulting you for laughing, but I will say this is, and again, I'm not, I'm not getting on you, I get it, but this is not a laughing matter. Um, this is terrifying, this is intimidating, this is abusive behavior. Um, men are tempted, if they have leadership, to not listen, but to make decisions that just serve themselves. Men are tempted when they are threatened to respond this way and to put people in their place, um, to dismiss people's opinions, to belittle people, and if that doesn't work, to then start threatening them. Um, this is active aggression. I've seen men that push their wives around, and again, I'm not just talking about wives because this is true in the workplace, this is true in friendships, this is true in families. Um, it's not just the husband and wife relationship, although it's almost most insidious in that relationship that is closer than any other human relationship on earth. Um, but men are tempted to argue, and then they're tempted to use twisted logic to blame the other person when they are in the wrong. 
Um, men are tempted to speak harshly. They're tempted to use whatever authority they have to serve themselves and get their own way. And so men, I've got to ask you, does this characterize any relationship that you have in your life? You know, and if this is, if this is an eight on a scale of one to ten, like are there any relationships in your life where you might measure a four? This active aggression um, is an abomination to God. This active aggression is the exact opposite of God's design. When you give in to active aggression, what you're doing, like what you're doing is you are taking the authority that God has given you and you're using it to serve yourself. You are opening yourself up to be controlled by sin and things that bring death and spread death in relationships, in families, in companies, in, in the city. When you do this, you are actively destroying God's design for you to be a life-giving protector of others. This is active aggression. Now there's another kind of aggression, and that's passive aggression. Okay, this has a better name. Usually we talk about being passive-aggressive. Um, passive aggression uh, leads to disengaging. Okay? Um, these men check out. They disengage, and they refuse to make decisions. Uh, they're called to lead, and they don't. Um, this is a photo. You're free to laugh at this, um, but I will talk about the tragedy of this as well. I mean, but this is what's, what it's embodied, and whether it's a couch or it's like the easy chair, but this is the man who's sitting down, and he's got the remote, and he's flipping channels, and he's leaving his wife to run the family. She's trying to engage. She's trying to ask questions. She's trying to have a relationship. And he is just checked out. Um, he is so busy building a world that uh, is designed to serve himself. And whether it's the television, whether it's the computer, whether it's the internet, whether it's social media, whether it's Xbox, like whatever it is, these are men who disengage. And it's not just that they disengage, but as they disengage, talking about husbands, um, they hold their wife or they hold others captive by criticism. Because though they don't want to lead or even participate, they are more than willing to criticize. They're more than willing to say negative things that bring people down. That is another form of abuse. It's manipulation because they're withholding attention and affection. The man who's passive-aggressive refuses to do anything about problems except criticize. Um, he doesn't have, like in his life, he tends to not have engaged friendships with other people who can call him on his stuff. Um, there's a lack of openness. There's a lack of honesty. Uh, he refuses to deal with his issues, and he just refuses to provide the leadership that his family might need, that his wife might need, that his children might need, that his company might need. 
And again, this spreads death in the world. It spreads death in the workplace, in relationships. It destroys community instead of building community. And so we have passive and active aggression, either abuse or neglect. Guys either squeeze way too hard or they completely let go. Um, And both reactions are designed for you to try to get your way, to rule badly over others. This is not what we want from the men who we call to lead in our church. Um, And don't we see this? Like, we see this everywhere. Like, this is so insidious, and it's wormed its way into everything. Um, There are places in the Bible that talk about this active and passive aggression that is just destroying societies. And it got so bad at one point in the Bible that one of the prophets, Isaiah, just cries out. He says this in Isaiah 64.1. He's calling out to God, and he says, Oh, you would rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah's going, look, man, this is so bad. God, would you just please, we need you to split open the heavens and come down and fix this. We need you to come. We need you to do this because we can't. It's like Isaiah's calling on God, save us from ourselves. Save our men from themselves. And friends, God's answer to our fall into aggression is to do just this. This is exactly what God has done in Jesus. Jesus has entered into our fallen and corrupted world, and he brought redemption. Jesus brings redemption from aggression to set us free from our broken ways of being men. And this is the good news. This is the good news, and it's specifically in this area of aggression, both passive and active. Because we, as men, we deserve judgment for our aggression. We deserve to be punished with the same kind of aggressive rulers that we ourselves have been. Um, We deserve to be ignored by God. We deserve to be cast off for God to completely disengage from us. We deserve to have ourselves let go into whatever foolishness our hearts would take us. We deserve for God to be absent and to forsake us. That's what we deserve. That's what our false, manly, aggressive sins deserve from God. And yet God has done the exact opposite. He's done the opposite. He doesn't throw us under the bus. He doesn't ignore us. He doesn't crush us, but he comes to rescue us. Jesus came to set us free. Jesus had all of the authority of God. And he used that authority to serve us. Not to get his way, but to bring us to get God's way. That's what Jesus did. I mean, we have aggressively abused our authority. We have passive-aggressively checked out and criticized. But Jesus did none of that. Jesus did the opposite. Jesus actually came and sought us out. We who disengage from God. We who check out when things are difficult or hard or confusing or we just are uncomfortable for us. We disengage from God. We walk away from God. And Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came to come and find us. 
so that wherever we are, and he's doing this right now today for every single one of you today. If you are passive aggressively ignoring God, if you are detaching from God, Jesus is here today saying, I am here for you. Look, I know what you're doing. I see what you're doing. I didn't design you for this. I didn't design you to disengage. I designed you to be a man. To, I designed for you to grow up and for you to have an impact on the world. I designed for you to be life-giving, for you, that the people who know you, the people who live around you, that they would know me because of you. My desire is to grow you to a place where you are mature enough to leave this world full of people who know the life of God and can share that life with others. That's why I've come. And even though you're running from me, I'm coming after you. I'm not going to let you go. This is our Savior. Jesus who came, and in the face of all of our active aggression, Jesus does not respond and retaliate in kind. Jesus is humble. He's not weak. He's the strongest man who ever lived, and yet he did not promote himself He did not threaten other people. He came to lead them back to God. He came to teach them what's right and wrong. He came to give them hope and a way out. And he meets us in our active aggression. And he takes our aggression and doesn't respond in the same way. Jesus says, I'm going to forgive you because you have no idea what you're doing. He did this in his life, and then he did it in his death. Jesus didn't just come and live the life free of these kinds of aggression, but he died a death absorbing this kind of aggression. The Jews were actively aggressive toward Jesus. They criticized him. They came after him. They attacked him. They threatened him. They arrested him. They falsely accused him. They handed him over to the Romans where he was crucified. The active aggression of humanity against Jesus is why he died. And he took that aggression on himself. He submitted to that active aggression and died. And even his passive aggression, our passive aggression, sent him to the cross. Remember Pontius Pilate? Pontius Pilate, who wanted to let Jesus go, knew Jesus didn't do anything wrong. His wife even told him, hey, I had a bad dream. Don't do this to this guy. Don't mess with this. What does Pilate do? You know what? I'm afraid. I'm nervous. I'm not really sure. I'm kind of, I'm a little bit like nervous about what Caesar might think if I let this guy go. So he washes his hands in the ultimate act of passive aggression. He washes his hand and says, not my responsibility. You want him dead? Fine, that's on you, not on me. Friends, our passive aggression sent Jesus to the cross. Sent Jesus to the cross. And he died for us. He took it all. He took every time we've been aggressive and either way he took it on himself and paid the price for our sins. And when we believe in him, when we see, when our hearts are cut to the quick, when we realize that he was there because of us, and we tell Jesus that we're sorry, 
We tell Jesus that we're done living for ourselves and we're going to live for Him. When we do that, when we commit to following Him, Jesus says, I forgive you. I forgive you. And I died to pay the price that your sins deserve. You deserve to be condemned for your aggression, and yet I have died for your sins. And we're accepted into the family of God and our perfect Heavenly Father then begins the process of making us men, real men, who are sons of our Father in heaven. And Jesus begins to renew us from the inside out. He makes us men into he makes us into men who aren't concerned about getting our way, but we're concerned about helping others get God's way. And that's what it's about. He calls us from active aggression to humble service. He calls you to actually think about how much authority do you have? In what relationships do you have authority in your family, with your spouse, at work, with your friends, in the church? What authority do you have? God says, I want you to use that authority to serve others. Because that's what it means to be a real man. He calls us from passive aggression. He calls us from sitting on the sidelines and not being engaged. He says, step up and get in the game. We're trying to renew the city one person at a time. And it starts with us. He calls us to step up. Jesus lifts us up gives us the encouragement and the strength that we need. Men, if you ever want to be an elder in the church, like you desperately need Jesus, you can't do this without His strength. You can't do this without Him manly responding to your unmanliness. Like we need Jesus to change us and to fill us, and that's exactly what He does. So what we need, we need men who know that all of their authority comes from God and it's designed to reflect Jesus' use of authority. We need men who know the sacrificial care and love of Jesus, that they've received it and want to share it with others. This is what we're looking for. People who know God's word so well that they can help others to know it. I mean, these are the people that lead our church. This is what it means to be a man. And for some, it looks like a cowboy, right? And for others, it looks like a hipster, right? There isn't one way that men are supposed to look. Um, and we need to understand that. But this is what we're aiming for. And I just want to remind you, look, we're all in process. All of us. Every man in here is in process, including me. All of us will struggle and fall abusing authority with a lack of patience lack of desire to understand others in conflict. Um, if you're not engaged in being a man, if you're not actively pursuing what God wants you to be as a man, then today is the day to make the change. Like today is the day um, because not only do we need elders and then deacons to be these kinds of men, but we need every single man in our church to be this way. We need every single man to have a vibrant relationship with God who understands authority and uses authority to serve others. 
We need men who are willing to confess and admit their aggression and to turn from it and walk in new life. Um, and this is what God wants from our church. And so, what do you do? Well, if you're a man, I want you to say today, I want to be this man. I want you to go to God and say, God, would you make me a man like this? And ask him, God, where would you like me to start? Is there something I'm doing that I need to stop doing? Is there something I'm not doing that I need to start doing? Ask yourself those questions today. If God puts something on your heart, write it down. And then I want you to get with another man in the church. Tell somebody else that, hey, you're taking the step today. Because if you do it on your own, you're going to you know, come Tuesday, maybe come Sunday afternoon, you're going to forget, you're going to move on. I don't want you to let go of this. If God is speaking to you, I want you to respond, and it's not good for you to do it alone. In this case, get another man who's going to encourage you, who's going to pray for you, who's going to do this in some ways with you. And women, would you join me in praying that God would give us men like this? Would you thank God for the men that we have that are this way? But would you pray with me that God would help our men to grow to become like this? I mean, what if every man in San Diego were like this? I mean, think about that. What if every man, how different would families be? How different would companies be if every man were like this? How different would politics be if every man were like this? And I know that it's not just men in there, but we'll talk about the women next week. Um, yeah, women, it's your turn next week. So um, fear and trembling on my part. Don't worry. But I feel like this should inspire every one of us to take some action. This should convict all of us when we fall. Um, and the good news is that Jesus is there to catch us. And he is actively working. And he wants, if you will open yourself up to him, he will work in you to make you in to this kind of man. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are the perfect man. We come to you in desperate need. Will you please stir our hearts? Would you please help the men in this room to identify what they need to stop doing? Jesus, bring us a godly shame for the aggressive ways that we treat others. Humble us and help us to confess our sin to you now and bring healing to us. Jesus, bring us back to the cross. Help us to see where our sin put you so that we would run from it. And Jesus, for those who are here and they're not Christians, I pray they'd be so inspired by this vision that you have for what you want to make men into. I pray they'd be so inspired to want to be life-giving men to others, that they'd be drawn to follow you. And I pray, Jesus, that we would see the fruit of this this week over the course of the next few months and that you would provide for us men like this 
who can lead and serve our church to equip us so that we all can grow closer and closer to who you are. We pray this in your name. Amen.